Yeah. Well, hey, this is the third uh, Sunday of Advent, and uh, for the past few weeks, we've been working our way through a series that we're calling A Thrill of Hope. And, and that word hope is a word that, that probably uh, best describes this entire season and what Advent is all about. This, this truly is a season of hope. And so a couple of weeks ago, uh, we, we began by talking about the hope that Jesus gave us that one day he's going to come back again, that he will return. And so during this season, we're reminded not, not just to look back at the first advent, but we're also reminded that we need to be looking forward to the second advent of Jesus. And, and then last week, we talked about how that as followers of Jesus, we want to make sure we know and guard where we put our hope that Jesus is our hope. And so we don't want to place our hope in just any system or any person that Jesus is the one who has come to make all things right. And so our hope is in him. Well, we're going to pick up this morning where we left off last week. And so if you've got your Bibles, we were in Luke chapter 3 last week. We're going to jump back in there. So you, if you've got them, you can turn there. But if you remember, uh, John the Baptist has come onto the scene. And, and he has a, a pretty straightforward mission. He's got a specific call upon his life. And that is simply to prepare the way for Jesus. Jesus was the coming Messiah that the people had been waiting for. And so John's job is to go and prepare the people's hearts and prepare the way for Jesus. And the way that he's doing that is that he's, he's preaching a message that, that probably is pretty familiar to most of us. But in that day, it was a radical, countercultural message that shifted the focus uh, of where the people were used to, the focus from um, you know, rules and sacrifices to instead baptism and repentance. And the crux of John's message is that through this baptism of repentance, and remember, we talked about the repentance is simply a word that means to turn and go a different direction. It's, it's a word that means, you know, I, I, I lived my life this way and I was headed this way, but repentance means I've decided to turn away from that and I'm going to head into a new direction or a different direction. And so it's through this baptism of repentance that the people's hearts are actually being prepared for the coming of the Messiah. And so in Luke chapter 3, uh, John has been by the Jordan River, he's been baptizing people, and uh, in those days, it was quite a show. I mean, you know, remember, this is the days before TV and movies and Xboxes and all of that kind of stuff. And so, so just John coming onto the scene, it drew a crowd. It drew a lot of people's attention because when John shows up, you know, he's been living out in the desert for 30 years. Scripture tells us that he shows up, you know, his hair's all messed up. He's got a camel hair coat that he's wearing. He's got a big old leather belt around his waist. He's been surviving out in the wilderness on locusts and wild honey. And so, you know, maybe he's got like a locust leg stuck in his teeth or something like that. And so John shows up on the scene and I'm telling you, this was like reality TV before there was TV. And so the people come, and wherever, he, wherever John is, because of his personality, but also because of the power of this new message, he's, he's bringing a message that the people had never heard before. And so the power of this new message caused wherever John was to, for big crowds to gather. 
And so this is the scene as we pick our story up in Luke chapter 3. And I want to invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. And I'm going to pick this up in Luke chapter 3, verse 7. Luke writes, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Wow, that's, that's kind of harsh, isn't it? He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? He says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Verse 9, he says, the axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 10, the people say, then what should we do then? The crowd asks. John answers, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. And so, teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. And then there were some soldiers that were there, and they asked him, what should we do? He replied, don't extort money, and don't accuse people falsely, and be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly, and they were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John extorted, or exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news. He didn't exhort the, or extort them, he exhorted the people. And he proclaimed good news to them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So I want you to just kind of hold that scene in your mind. We're going to come back there in just a moment. It's an it's a, it's a incredible scene. And so just hold on to that, but I want to begin this morning with a question. And my question is this, how, how many here, uh, by show of hands, are first-generation Christians? In other words, you, know, you're, you're, you didn't grow up in the church, your, your parents uh, weren't necessarily followers of Christ or taught you about Christ, but you're kind of the first one maybe in your family that received Christ in your life. Anybody here, first-generation? Wow, so cool, so cool. You can't raise your hand, that's, yeah. That is so awesome. That is, that is so cool. Okay, so let me, let me ask this. How many then would be second generation Christians? So this means your parents, you know, you grew up in a home where your parents uh, taught you about Jesus. Any second generation? Oh, good, good number of you. All right, so let's go one more generation. So third generation. So your grandparents were Christians, your parents, and then you. All right, you can put them down. Bunch of you in that category. And then just for fun, how about like fourth, fifth, sixth, and beyond. Wow. Wow, that is so awesome. You can put your hands down. 
So let me just say this to you all. Uh, but first, I want to say this to anyone here who is a first generation. We had a few of you raise your hands. First generation uh, followers of Jesus. Um, number one, congratulations. I, I, think, I think it is so cool that you made a decision, that maybe you were the first one in your family that you made a decision that possibly could impact your family for generations to come. I mean, that is, that is so awesome. When, when we see the number of people, and, and there was a surprising number of people here who said, no, you know, we're, we're like fourth, fifth, sixth generation Christians. Just think, you could be the start of that. You could be the start of your decision that 50, 60, 100 years from now, somebody could look back and point to the decision that you made that has impacted their lives. And so congratulations for that. That is so cool. And then for those of you who grew up in a Christian home, I, I want to remind you how blessed you are. That, that there's, there's nothing greater, I think, than passing along a Christian heritage to our children. We saw a bunch of little ones who are here this morning, and you're doing that. Passing along a Christian heritage. There's no greater blessing than knowing that there are parents and grandparents that are speaking into and praying over the lives of their children and grandchildren. No greater gift that you could give your family. I think in my own family's life, I'm a product of that. My, my father, and I've told this story before, my, my father was one of the first in his family to receive Christ. He grew up in an alcoholic home, and as a young boy, he encountered Jesus and made that decision. And that decision changed the entire trajectory of our family. That decision that he made way before I was ever even a thought that decision impacted my life and my sister's lives and the, the lives of our family. And the cool thing about it is the decision that he made not only went downstream, but it also went upstream because it impacted his parents' lives and they eventually gave their lives to Christ. And so I guess what I'm saying is don't underestimate the value of the decision that you have and at the same time also don't underestimate the value of a Christian heritage that you have the privilege of being able to pass along. We believe in the power of that. That's why as a church, you know, we, we, we believe in investing in the lives of our children. That's why we do things like we did this morning. And that's why we invest in a children's pastor. And we have a wonderful one at that. But we invest in them. And our job is, I want to remind you of this, is the job of the church is not to develop spiritually healthy children. Believe it or not. That's your job as parents. You know, we get them for an hour a week, maybe a couple hours at most. And so in order to develop a spiritually healthy individual in just a couple of hours at most a week is a very difficult task. There is no greater influencer on the planet in children's lives than parents and grandparents, than family. And so the job of the church is to come alongside of you and support you as parents and reinforce what you're already doing in the home and what you're modeling in the home. And so I just want to remind you this morning the value of that teaching and that heritage that it can impact generation after generation after generation. But I also want to remind you of this is that while Christian heritage is important, I want to remind you that it is not our heritage that saves us. 
Just because grandma and grandpa were followers of Jesus and just because mom and dad raised us up in the church, that in and of itself is not what makes us Christian. Someone once said that the one thing that God has never possessed, we know that God, he, he has all things and he possesses all things, but one of the things that God has never had is a grandchild, right? God only has children, and so, um, you know, every single one of us must decide for ourselves that we're going to follow Jesus, and every single one of us must receive salvation through repentance for ourselves. It's not something that we inherit based on a decision that our parents or our grandparents made. And so we value a Christian heritage, but that heritage is not what saves us. Now, the reason I say all of that is because in this scene that we read this morning, when John comes onto the scene, that is the type of thinking that he is dealing with with the people he's addressing. This is a group of people uh, for, for in John's day that were exceptionally proud of their Jewish heritage, and rightfully so. But, but their problem was but that they had begun to view that heritage as a means to their salvation. In other words, they thought, you know what, because we're children of Abraham, because we're part of his family tree, that in and of itself is what gives us access into the heart of God. And, and, and so when John comes onto the scene, he says, hold on a second here. Yea, God, for your Christian heritage or for your long heritage that you have of people who knew what it was to have an intimate relationship with God and walk with God. Yea, God, for that. But guys, I want to remind you that your heritage, your family tree, does not give you automatic entrance into the kingdom of God. Instead, he says, even for you, children of Israel, even though you are highly favored, even though you are children of Israel, the way into the kingdom is simply through living lives of repentance. In other words, he's saying being children of Abraham isn't a get-out-of-jail card free. Even though God promised Abraham that his descendants would be numerous, John reminds them that if it's about having descendants, that God has the power to make children of Abraham out of stones. What he's looking for, John says, are not simply descendants, but what he really wants are people who have the heart of Abraham. Not just descendants of Abraham, people have the heart of Abraham, people who are wholeheartedly dedicated to him. And so I just want to remind us this morning that, again, while we have every right to be proud of and need to be thankful for our Christian heritage, that alone is not our salvation. And, and just because you're born in America, and just because mom and dad took you to church, that alone is not enough. In fact, John says that, that being a child of God is demonstrated by fruit. That's what he says. Some of you are like, well, we're fruity enough, so we must be in there. But No, that, that, that being a child of God is demonstrated by the fruit that is born out of our lives. He says that for anyone who calls himself a follower of Jesus, that needs to be not just a label or a title for the sake of a title. But instead, he says, it ought to be 
our way of living. That to be a follower of Jesus is not, I just don't call myself a Christian, that that title impacts the decisions that I make in my life, the choices that I make in my life. It impacts the way people view me. It impacts everything. It is a way of living. And he says, if we're living out our faith, there should be some sort of fruit that is produced from that living out of our faith, right? It just makes sense. If we're living out our faith, there ought to be some fruit that is produced. In other words, you know, one of the ways that we know that an apple tree is an apple tree is because it produces apples, yeah. That's one of the ways that we know. And just, just like a fruit tree that doesn't bear fruit, John says that it'll be cut down. Our family trees, he says, are also meaningless unless there's some sort of fruit that is born. And so John says, the way into the kingdom is not through your physical birth, being born into a Christian family, but instead through a new birth, which is what baptism represents. We know that. Whenever you go down in the water and you come back out, it's like a new birth, a new life. And so John says the way into the kingdom is not through your first birth, but it's through a new birth, a new birth that results from repentance. And then he says that the way that that repentance, it doesn't stop at baptism. He says the way that that repentance is proved to be genuine is by the fruit that is produced in your life. In other words, remember, repentance is I'm headed this way, now I'm going to go a different direction. So, so what John is saying is there ought to be a noticeable difference in the way that we live our lives from before repentance and after repentance. Our lives ought to begin to look different right? You with me? Okay. And so when the people hear this, so John, this is his message. When the people hear this, they ask John this very important question that I think we ought to ask as well. They say, what shall we do then? If that's the case, if we're supposed to walk in repentance, and when we do that, our lives are going to look different, essentially what they're asking is, what should our lives look like then? If, 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 if this thing, in other words, if this thing that we once thought was evidence of our belonging in the kingdom, simply being offspring of Abraham, is not evidence, then what is, what does it look like? What is the fruit that demonstrates genuine repentance? And I love John's answer for this. It's so simple. And maybe for some of us, maybe even a little surprising, because John tells them the answer is not, you know, go to the synagogue more often. Go to, go to church more often. It's not, you know, pray through the Psalms more often. It's not memorize more of the, the scriptures or the law, although all those things are wonderful things. Instead, John gets really practical, and he says, if you want to produce good fruit that is in line with repentance, then here it is. Simply learn how to share. That's something. John says you need to learn how to, to share. According, according to John, one of the primary evidences that people have not only received but are walking in repentance is that they make it their practice. It's a habit of their lives that they share what is theirs with other people. Which, which you know, again, on one hand, may be a little surprising to us, but on the other, it, it just makes sense. 
I mean, after all, the ultimate call of Jesus upon our lives is simply to live like he did. And what did he do? When he came, he didn't come to get and to take and to hoard, but rather he came to give. Yeah, he came to give. In fact, Jesus took what was rightfully his, his sonship, intimate relationship with the Father, and through his death and resurrection, him giving of his life, he sacrificed, he gave of himself, he shared with us what was rightfully his. Sonship, daughtership, relationship with the Father. And so this idea of sharing, it's such a simple one, but yet at the same time, for many of us, it can be such a hard thing to do for some reason. I mean, in many ways, it goes against our, our nature. Uh, and, you know, I mean, you, you think about it, we just have the little ones up here, and, and, and sharing is, is a lesson that, you know, it's taught everywhere to little kids. It's taught in Sunday school classes, it's taught in, in schools all over the world. You know, the, 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 the lesson we teach our children is don't be selfish, don't take advantage of people, share. It's really not that complicated. And yet the reality is when it translates into how we live out our lives, living lives of generosity, it can be way harder for us to live out than it is for us to say, which is nothing new. Because that was the case for the people of John's day. This is the message he came to bring them. This is one of the issues they're dealing with. You see, John lived at a time where, like today, there was a significant economic inequality that existed. This was a time in history where there was a huge divide between the haves and the have-nots. Where wealthy Romans and those who had been placed in positions of authority lived lives of extravagant comfort, while those who were not favored citizens of Rome lived in intense poverty and want. In fact, history is full of stories that illustrate just the disparity between the classes. There are stories about people during this time that actually would abandon their infants along the side of the road in hopes that somebody, a wealthy family, might take that child in and raise that child to serve as a slave in the household. It wasn't unusual in those days for fathers out of desperation to, to sell themselves and their entire family into slavery in order to just have the simple necessities, you know, like food and clothing and shelter. And in those days, slavery was one of those issues that people viewed entirely differently than we view that today. For them, uh, slaves and servants were just a, a part of what it meant to build an empire at this time. And so, so it was one of those things that was just an accepted reality that in order for some to enjoy wealth that existed, that meant others had to go without. And it was just, that's just the way of the world. That's just the way that it was. And we talked a little bit about this last week, but this is one of the reasons why the message of John the Baptist was so counter-cultural, because ultimately what he's doing is he's actually redefining that word K. 
kingdom. He comes using that language. Jesus would follow using this kingdom language. And they're speaking it to a group of people who knew all about kingdom, but it meant a specific thing to them. And it wasn't necessarily a positive thing, especially if you were one of those on the bottom. And so he's redefining what this word kingdom means. And and again, these people were used to kingdom living. They had a long history of kingdom living. They they had become accustomed of trying to exist and survive under the rule and authority of kings. And traditionally, the way that, that most kingdoms operated was that the ones on the top would benefit at the expense of those on the bottom. And this was the current situation for most of these that are hearing John's message. You see, for the the kingdom of Rome had had just kind of had a philosophy. They said, you know what, it's okay. Do whatever it takes to get to the top. Do whatever it takes to live a wealthy life. Even if that means owning slaves. Even if that means taking advantage of your neighbor. Whatever it takes, the important thing is do for you what's best for you and make sure you get to the top. Doesn't matter what happens to anybody else. Life was cheap. And so John, when he shows up on the scene, he's using this kingdom language, but he's totally redefining what it means. He says, I want you to understand that there is a kingdom that is coming, and it is going to be governed by a king. And this this king that is coming in his kingdom, things are going to be totally different than any other kingdom that you've ever experienced before. John says, in in this kingdom, it's not about how can I benefit at your expense. Instead, he said, this kingdom is defined not by what can I get, but what can I give. Totally a new message. John says, in this kingdom, it's not about who do I have to step on in order to move up, But instead, it's about how can I help those around me better themselves? He he says this kingdom is not about acquiring and accumulating and amassing more for me. Instead, he says, in this kingdom, if you have more than you need, then as a citizen of this kingdom, it's your responsibility to share with those who are going without. Now for us, again, I know we, might, we may not fully be able to grasp what it's like to live under an oppressive authority like the people of John's day were living. It, it, it's, but it certainly isn't a stretch for us to see how that generosity can be difficult sometimes. Because the reality is, we still live in a world with great economic disparity. We've talked about this before, but just by us being blessed to be born American citizens, that alone places us, every person in this room, in the top 10% economically in the world. That there are numerous examples of people who, who go without so that people like us can enjoy the fruit of their labor. One example that comes to mind is the sweatshop industry. Most of us don't like to talk about it. We don't don't like to talk about how easy it is to disregard the poverty and the mistreatment of others around the world. 
and what they face in order for us to get a good price on a product that makes our lives easier. But the reality is it exists. I was reading just this past week um, from World Vision about a young girl that had just recently been rescued from a, a, a sweatshop in Bangladesh. And at 12 years old, she was forced for 12 hours a day to sew at least 60 pockets per hour on designer jeans that eventually would be sold in Canada and the U.S. And, and for her efforts, she was paid a dollar a day. Unfortunately, you know, that stories like that are repeated over and over and over again. And the bottom line is there are still people who are on the bottom based mostly on where they were born <laughs> who are paying a price so that others on top can flourish. And while it's easy for us to turn a blind eye to it, you know, this happens around the world all of the time. I was talking uh, to somebody the other day uh, about how it, and it, you know, this kind of plays itself out in, in places like the tourism industry. Um, you know, many of the locations that have become havens for luxury vacations, if you walk just a few blocks from the, the resorts or the ports, what you'll find are the people who work uh, at these resorts living in conditions that are horrible way below the poverty line. And, and so when you, think about, when you think about how those of us who have been blessed enough to live here in the United States live, especially in contrast to how the majority of the rest of the world lives, sharing may actually be more complicated than we thought even for those of us who would consider ourselves to live lives of generosity and so unfortunately you know even though it may not be as evident or dramatic uh, maybe just maybe there are some similarities between how we lived and how they were living in the first century D during this time during John's time in the Roman Empire there, there were people who coveted luxury. That never happens in our time, right? There were people who coveted luxury. And, and so that is the reason that John uses a couple of very specific examples for those who are asking these questions. First of all, he says, if you want to live a life of genuine repentance, then, again, if you want to turn and go a different way, then maybe what that might look like is if you have two shirts, maybe you could give one to somebody who doesn't have any. If you, in other words, it says if you have two coats. If you have two coats, then, then how about you just give one to somebody who doesn't have a coat? In other words, what John is saying is instead of, instead of amassing more and more and more for yourself, why not take of some of your extra and share it with somebody who doesn't have what you have? That, that seems pretty simple, doesn't it? Now, now, this is important, and I want you to notice something here. Notice that John is not asking anybody to go without. He's not saying, if you only have one coat, give up the coat that you have. If you only have one shirt, give up the shirt that you have. No, what he's saying is, is out of your excess, and we all live in excess, but out of your excess, give to those in need. That's important for us to remember that John is talking about the extra. 
It's interesting because we're told that there are a few groups of people there, and so there's a group of tax collectors, and so they say, you know, what about us? What does this look like for us? What do we need to do to, to bear the fruit of repentance? And so John looks at them, and he says, okay, guys, if you want to genuinely walk in repentance, how about this? Don't cheat people. Just, just quit cheating people and taking advantage of people. If you really want to turn and go a different direction, it's no secret that you've made it a habit to overcharge citizens in order to profit yourselves. You, you, you used to do that before. You, you, used to, you used to live in that way before you were baptized, but if you're really going to walk in this baptism of repentance, quit cheating people, overcharging people, skimming off the top so that you can benefit yourselves. In other words, turn and go a different way. Then, then we're told there are some soldiers there, and, and these soldiers have been baptized, and they say, okay, that's for them, and, uh, so what about us? What, what, do, what do we need to do? What does it look like for us to walk in repentance? And so to them, John says, hey, how about you just do your job? You know, how about you stop extorting those less powerful than you and instead do your job and protect those with less power than you? How about you protect those who are defenseless and need protecting? And then this is interesting, he says, And then be content with what you get paid to do that. Don't always be wanting more. Be content with what you have. In other words, John is saying, don't allow your personal discontentment with what you have drive you to act in such a way that is unjust, but even more importantly, counter to your baptism of repentance. Now, now I know, again, we live in a different world. But how many times are we tempted to do things like, you know, when you think of tax collectors, it's kind of the opposite. How many times are we tempted to cheat on our taxes in order to benefit ourselves? I think think John would be addressing that for us today. How often, rather than reaching out and, and making the effort to protect those that are below us, do we just turn a blind eye? Maybe we don't extort them, but we certainly benefit from them. And so, so even though these three examples are very specific to that day and age, you know, in that Roman culture, the philosophy was, you know, we, we collect, we store up all that we can for ourselves, even if that means that a whole bunch of others have to go without. That's just the way that it is. You know, it's just, it's just the favor of the gods. It's, we were born, you know, we can't help it. We were born Romans and they weren't. For them, it was a common practice. They knew that being a tax collector was, that just meant you operated in shady ways. I mean, everybody does it. That's how everybody lives. They knew that being a Roman soldier, extorting money through physical threats and demonstrations of power was just a kind of an understood perk of being a soldier. And so in that culture, this kind of living was accepted by the masses. It was just expected that somebody with power would use that power to take from those who had less than they did. I mean, if you, if, after, the thing was, after all, if you have power, why wouldn't you use it to benefit yourself? And, and so even though that way of living may be somewhat foreign to us, still 
there is a dynamic at work that I'm afraid may not be so foreign. I mean, it may look different for us, but the question is the same. The question is, as followers of Jesus, how do we use the power that has been given to us? As followers of Jesus, how do we use the power that's given to us? Do we use it for our own personal profit? Or will we use whatever power we may have for the betterment of the powerless? That's the question. It's the same question. That that's the real dynamic at work here. And what John is saying to them and what he's also saying to us is that as followers of Jesus, part of what it looks like to walk in repentance is to turn away from the natural inclination to use my power to gain more for me. Especially when it means either directly or indirectly taking advantage of those less powerful than me. You see, instead, we have been called to turn and go the opposite direction. <laughs> we, we have been called to invest in, to help those who may not have the advantages or the resources that we've been given. You, you see, while, while our specific circumstances may be different than they were for the people in John's day, what was true for them is still true for us. It's still so easy for us to get caught in that trap of wanting more for us, more than we need, more for me, hoarding more than I'll ever use. It's easy to get caught in the trap of looking for shortcuts to accumulate wealth, even if it's at the expense of somebody else. And ultimately, there's always the temptation to use whatever power we might have in order to push ourselves forward instead of using that power to pull others up. And so the circumstances may be different, but the dynamic is still the same. And folks, this is one of the, the great, great things about Advent is, is, is it reminds us, Advent reminds us, it exposes our need for a kingdom. It reminds us that we need to live in a different way and what Christ did and how we need to live under a different kingdom that instead of endorsing more for me, whatever the cost, instead it pushes us to the hope that exists of living a life of generosity. You see, the coming of Jesus provided the people of John's day a hope of a new kingdom. A new kingdom where every person is valuable. And where we can employ our God-given gifts, not simply for our own gain, but rather for the good of the entire community. In this kingdom, it's a kingdom where the rich don't take advantage of the poor, but instead, they use their power, their resources to help take care of the poor. It's a kingdom where the strong help carry the weak, where hurting and struggling folks are not ignored or forgotten or condemned, but instead they are loved and cared for and healed. You see, the hope of the kingdom is that it's a place for all people. For all people. Where, where all people have value, and they, their value is not based on what they have or where they were born or what talents they possess, but their value is simply placed on because they matter to God. And because they matter to God, 
then they matter to us as well. That's such good news, isn't it? That the hope of the kingdom is so much greater than the hope of what can I accumulate. And the hope of Advent reminds us that when Jesus came, he brought something with him that was so much more valuable than just material comforts. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I need to be reminded of that. I, I need to be reminded of that because we live in a world and we live in a way that is so consumeristic and our culture just has so many pulls that try and tear at us. And sometimes we forget what the kingdom of God truly is all about. We, we often, you know, we talk about the joy of giving during this season, but way often we lose the joy because of our desire to have better. <laughs> and have more. We've talked about that before. And so one of the important things Advent is intended to do, it's, to, it's intended to help us rethink how we celebrate Christmas. It, it reminds us, for those of us who have given our lives to Jesus, who have repented of our sins, that our repentance is we have committed ourselves to turn and to go a different direction than everybody else is going. We just don't follow the crowd. That the message of Jesus is more than just get all you can for yourself. Instead, it's one of sharing with those who are in need. You see, when Jesus entered into this world, he came to a planet who needed a Savior. Guess what? You and I need a Savior. You and I need a Savior because, because all of us on the power scale we're on the bottom. None of us could save ourselves. We needed somebody to save us. We were spiritually bankrupt. And when Jesus came, he didn't come just simply to better his position at our expense. No, instead he came and he gave of himself in order to elevate us. And so maybe, you know, maybe the best way for us to celebrate this Advent season, the coming of Jesus would be to simply evaluate and where need be, reorder our lives in such a way that we could create some space and margin to simply do what Jesus did and share with somebody else. Instead of accumulating more toys, maybe we need to give some of our toys away. You see, if more stuff was the answer, then America would be the happiest place on the planet. And we all know that it's not. <laughs> you see, we're, we're not designed to live that way. You, you don't have to be a genius to figure out that more doesn't always equal happy. And maybe that's why, you know, in this day and age we live in, there's like this, this push, even outside of Christian circles, to live a life of minimalism. A lot of people are saying, you know what? I got all this stuff. I got the big house. I worked for it. I got the, you know, so many cars and the boat and, and all the toys and all that stuff, and I'm still not happy. <laughs> that stuff didn't make me happy. And so there's this push of minimalism, and I think that that may just be a direct response to realizing that having more stuff rather than bringing joy 
can actually become overwhelming and drain us of our joy. But on the other hand, it's been proven that people who are generous tend to have more joy. You see, folks, when we learn to live with open-handed generosity towards others, what also happens at the same time is we learn to live in this relationship of dependency on God. And when we live in dependency on the Father, what happens is we experience the joy of existing in a different kind of kingdom, and it's the kingdom that Jesus brought to us upon his advent. It's the kingdom that is defined by generosity. I'm gonna invite the band to come. And as they come, I just want to remind you again that this kingdom of God that I'm talking about this morning, this kingdom of God is, is a kingdom that operates on level ground. Nobody who has more access to it than others. It's a kingdom that operates on level ground where, where we love and care for one another. You see, here's the bottom line. It isn't enough to simply say that we belong to a family of faith. John's message was, instead, we must actually be people of faith. <laughs> Which means living out kingdom life, a life of generosity, living generously towards those around us, illustrating our love for God and others and demonstrating our faith that God loves and cares for all of us by the way that we live our lives. And I'm telling you, when you live like that, that is how you'll experience true joy. That is how. Father, this morning, as we wrap this up, thank you for your reminder through your word that you've invited us to live differently. That, that while we can be grateful for our Christian heritage and while we can pass that along, and we certainly should, the reminder is that what we really need is to walk in repentance, which means to turn and go a different direction than the way we've been heading. I don't know what that looks like for everybody here this morning. I, I just know this, that your command upon us is to bear fruit out of our lives. And so, Father, may we be constantly evaluating our lives, where we're at, and what is the fruit that's being produced let us walk in faith. And you said one of the best ways that we could do that was simply by following the lessons that we teach little children, and that is learning how to share what we have with those who are in need. Wouldn't, wow, wouldn't that be awesome if we just became a people who were known for our generosity, that the people of Connecting Point, they really know how to share. They really know how to give. Help us to live that out. We pray that you would just lead us in that way during this season. And in that, may we find the joy that exists because of your coming. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand. And, and just as a way of closing this out, I, I want us to sing about the joy that exists because Jesus came. So we're going to sing one of the great songs. We love these Christmas songs. But we're going to sing one of the great Christmas songs, and that is Joy to the World. So stand with me this morning. <laughs>